and welcome to, wait a second, Calvin, where are we? Well, we're in the recording studio, but this isn't our podcast. I think this is another show on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Oh man, we gotta get out of here. Wait, maybe we should tell them about our show. Hey, that's a swell idea. Our show, Let's Pharmanize, is everything you'd want in a pharmacy podcast. History, pop culture, sex appeal, and humor. We've covered the drug from Linitless, medicine of World War II, the ancient history of birth control, and more. Let's open the vault. Crack that baby open. Does one of the side effects of this medication include a good time? Because... <laughs> yeah, it's E. So there's G-M-A-D and then there's E. E stands for allergies. <laughs> it's like this spider like drapey thing. We have used wet meatloaf five times in this conversation and that is five too many times to use the term wet meatloaf. It's like a round lasagna. I mean, you know, it hurts pretty bad and you're thinking, man, onga bonga, this is pretty bad. <laughs> We post new episodes every Monday. Check out Let's Farmanize on your favorite podcast platform and social media. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Infectious disease. What better what better subject to be talking about in the midst of a pandemic? I'm a glass half full kind of person, so I feel that we're we're cresting the the worst of what we've seen um, for the uh, the outbreak of COVID-19 throughout the world and also the variant that has changed. However, I talk with lots of pharmacists every day and and keep my nose plugged into many different news organizations and sources that pull information from the CDC and the World Health Organization. And there's concerns about um, the future of infectious disease and, and our immune systems not responding to vaccines as it should or be designed to do. And I thought that this was a great subject to dive into with someone who really has their finger on the pulse of this sector of healthcare and infectious disease. And that's Dr. Anthony Singor. He's our guest today. He's Senior Medical Director of PolyPIP uh, Limited. Welcome, Dr. Singor. How are you? Great. Thank you very much. So kick us off with my opening statement, which is this concern that our immune systems aren't reacting as they as they did 20, 30 years ago because of all of the advancements, the balance between the good and the negative when we are developing uh, vaccines and and many of the medications that have come out today and seeing how the pharmaceutical manufacturers over the last uh, 20, 10, five years, it's 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 expanded by over 300% just in the products that are available today. So with that, what, what kind of concerns come from someone like you who, who really is in this, uh, this space every day? Well, I think you have to break down viral infections separately from uh, bacterial infections. Uh, and I guess to a larger degree, uh, parasitic as well, uh, because each group of uh, pathogens has its own unique defense characteristics that, that it employs. Um, virus probably the least, uh, because all it can really do is change its various receptors. And if it changes too much, uh, particularly on the uh, receptors that it requires to actually infect our cells, it can actually put itself out of business. 
Um, so I think that strategy, as we've learned with COVID, uh, has been very interesting and, and fortuitously, uh, the fact that several manufacturers have been able to come up with highly effective strategies built on the usual success, right? 10 years of work and uh, another overnight success, but able to deploy their technology very rapidly and effectively on, on behalf of, of humankind has been uh, fantastic. Um, for the bacterial side of it, uh, there I think it's the ability of the bacteria to rapidly adjust to the pressures it sees in the environment, uh, both in the general environment, uh, as well as in the medical environment. Uh, but it, there it's able to sort of defeat the drugs specifically through a variety of mechanisms. So drug resistant pathogens of all types, um, antibiotic resistant crisis that we could say that we're in, in in, from from several news sources, one of them was a uh, was Nature.com that did an article on on um, innovative tools that are taking aim at antibiotic resistant microbes, and they mentioned specifically tuberculosis. Um, can you use that as an example and kind of take us down the path of of what the concern truly is? I'm probably not the best expert on TB, to be honest with you. Uh, but if you, if you step back a minute and, and sort of think about the mechanisms globally, how a bacteria, because that's what we'll focus on, can respond, it can either degrade the agent faster, it can exclude the agent at a pace uh, from itself, push it back out in the environment prior to any inherent toxicity to the bacteria. Um, it can change the ability of the target of the of the agent uh, inside by its own mutational pattern, much like we talked about earlier with viruses. So, so there's sort of several large groups of responses that bacteria can do. And because they're, you know, I guess more concerned about the propagation of the species than the individual, and they can replicate quickly, you could see how over time, just by experimentation, these strategies can be very successful and, you know, arguably have been. Uh, for bacteria uh, in at least the modern antibiotic era. So what advancements are you seeing in diagnostics that can kind of determine how a agent is combating infection, combating, um, you know, what we're kind of after? Is there any, I always think of, of collecting data and being able to give a physician give a medical team, even give a, a pharmacist that's specific to a, a treatment or a disease state data ahead, ahead of time to see what may be coming down the pike of, of outcomes. And, and that's a curiosity for me, for someone that's been in, you know, healthcare and, and serving and, and, you know, uh, a cancer, uh, follow-up, for example, um, you know, with, with the experiences that you have? So I think the, the advantage we have um, in the antibacterial space is that the really the largest percentage of response is really the efflux pumps mechanism. So you don't really need to know clinically, you don't really need to know which one of the pumps is in play, uh, but you can sort of have globally uh, an antibiotic that's altered that allows it to uh, 
be less efficiently pumped out, or alternatively, have a strategy where you can just overwhelm the pump mechanism uh, by being able to get a higher environmental exposure to the antibiotic and then a higher internal uh, exposure as a result of that. So, so I think that while it's interesting to know from a, a research perspective, which one of the variety of pumps is, is uh, being activated for a specific antibiotic, if you're taking a strategy of overwhelming the pump, uh, then I don't know that the specifics matter. Alternatively, if you really want to uh, interfere with the biochemical efficiency of that pump for a specific molecule, then yes, you would want a diagnostic pattern. Um, I think that in the whole era of uh, whole genome array and a variety of other rapid diagnostic tests, I think uh, diagnostic companies will increase our portfolio uh, for on-the-fly, hopefully point-of-service testing ultimately, uh, but I think that's still a stretch goal clinically. What advancements in treatment are you reading about or studying or have you seen um, implemented in specific cancers that you have uh, treatment um, exposure to, experience with? Um, so again, not being a medical oncologist, I, I think, the, you know, as I look at it as a surgeon, where we've seen the biggest advance is the switching to more focused small molecules that are aimed at, at specific receptors that drive biochemical functionality. Very different concept than direct toxicity uh, of the traditional uh, anti-neoplastic uh, uh, anti agents. Uh, the beauty of that is it's specific to the tumor. Uh, we've been able to revolutionize, I think, a lot of therapy uh, and now begin to think because the toxicity is less, as a surgeon, it alters the whole concept of neoadjuvant therapy, right? Because you can now, attack the tumor before it's been disrupted by any physical intervention, uh, impact it with the, uh, with the newer agents aimed at its actual biochemical functionality, uh, either whether it be a monoclonal antibody or some other small molecule uh, strategy, shrink the tumor and make it more amenable uh, to a resection approach. How are you working with pharmacists in this space and, and caring for your patients uh, after surgery and follow-up to ensure that infection is minimized as much as possible? Uh, I think the, the whole concept of antibiotic stewardship um, was a nice concept to start with. I think it got a little clunky in terms of really rolling it out because uh, it was hard to integrate the team. But now uh, I think as folks have learned how to manage that process better. It's beyond simply restricting the use of an antibiotic or you know, limiting the number of doses automatically in the EMR to a true collaborative approach of what are the best agents, both in terms of uh, efficacy against the bacteria you're targeting, but also functionally in terms of delivery, cost structure, uh, uh, drug resistance risks, I think teams have become a lot more efficient on which antibiotics to use and how to use them within a process of care, not simply be uh, you know punitive and restrictive uh, in the uh, in the approach to that process. What about that uh, you know colon cancer, for example? is it is it a growing? Um, are we finding ways to to grow the 
preemptive uh, approach to that? Um, is someone in your space that's that's uh, in surgery to see it? You know, in in real life, you're seeing it. You're seeing it at its worst. Are, are you able to? help to assess how the preemptive um, services that could be pulled through uh, medication treatments or holistic um, habits, uh, what kind of extraction or, of data can, uh, can a surgeon give to, to be more preventative? You know, I would tell you from a public health policy perspective at this point in time for colorectal cancer, screening is really the, the best and most efficient at a population level. There are several different strategies. You can combine diagnostic tests with endoscopic evaluation, depending on, on uh, individual risk factors for a given patient. But clearly, a regular utilization of a, of a screening process, and you can really pick any one of the above. There's proponents of, of each, pure endoscopic, uh, pure diagnostic testing for fecal occult blood or uh, those kinds of strategies. But clearly, using some... Um, regular and consistent approach to screening is the best way to avoid uh, significant problems with colorectal cancer. You can catch them at the pre-malignant stage uh, with just neoplastic polyps, and at the worst case, an early stage lesion that's highly amenable uh, to surgical resection. Uh, we should, in theory, find very few advanced diseases. Now, now the risk is that the population has shifted for whatever reason, to a population that typically wouldn't be engaged in the screening process, i.e. under 50 years old. So I think we need to learn um, as we go younger, even because the risk is lower, even though it's growing, the risk is still lower proportionally. You don't want a very expensive invasive screening process. Maybe start at pick an age 40 or so, uh, depending on the risk profile with one of the biochemical strategies um, and then scale up from there. Uh, but but clearly, I think we will shift our, our process to earlier, much like we learned with breast cancer, um, and use it more consistently in those populations. Dr. Senegor, I love technology. Um, I'm a science fiction buff, so I always think of the real world and reality in using technology. Have you had any experience in using robotics uh, in, in surgery and and what's to come um, as you've been paying attention to this sector of healthcare? So I have. I, I you know, arguably I'm a proponent still of, of straight laparoscopy. I think that's still a, a pretty significant advance over open surgery uh, because it's minimally invasive. Uh, robotics clearly has its proponents and it has some um, advantages for the surgeon uh, in terms of ergonomics and control of the instruments. Uh, how much that has really uh, improved cost efficiency in particular can be argued. I think technically they're probably equivalent, straight laparoscopic versus robotics. If you think about it, we don't truly have robotic instruments yet. Uh, we have uh, better ergonomically con surgeon-controlled instrumentation. Um, you know, true robotics, I think if you're you know pushing the envelope like Star Trek, Star Wars is autonomously functioning devices that either work in parallel with the surgeon or instead of the surgeon. We don't really have those kinds of tools yet. Um, you know, that will take a lot of computer power. And I think to, you have to think about image acquisition, uh, layering that with 
normal anatomy and then have the device uh, be able to operate autonomously. The, I think that's a pretty sophisticated algorithm uh, from data acquisition to actual intervention. Um, but, but arguably, you know, the instrumentation we have will not get worse, right? The technology will only improve and any tool that can be more efficiently and consistently applied by a technician, not to minimize a surgeon's role, but a, even a highly skilled technician or a highly skilled professional will benefit from a uh, device that can be controlled uh, in a better fashion. I think if you step back and went with uh, combat aviation, I think arguably some of the advanced avionics in the, in the current generation of fighter planes would be pretty devastating to a World War II uh, combat formation. So <laughs> I think a pilot would, would definitely choose the modern avionics. So tell us a little bit about your role at Polypid and, and what they're doing in biopharma and focusing on the development of, uh, of targeting um, you know, prolonged release therapeutics. For Polypid, the, the strategy of the company and, and its core uh, technology is really the ability to control the local release of a variety of molecules. At this point, we really haven't found a, uh, a category of molecules that can't be incorporated into the structure. And since we're audio uh, for the audience, I would make uh, people reference an onion. So if you can put the therapeutics between the various layers of the onion, we can sequentially have the onion peel itself. And in that format, consistently deliver an amount of agent. Um, for the purposes now of what we're studying, uh, we're focusing on the delivery of doxycycline, uh, broad, uh, low resistance rate um, uh, antibiotic that covers uh, a variety of, uh, of anti uh, of uh, bacteria uh, that we see clinically. Um, and the focus of this is to be prophylaxis for surgical site infection. Well, that's exciting. I, I think of the pharmacists that are going to be listening that are probably going to want to learn more. I'm going to have links into um, the show notes uh, directing back to uh, Polypid. Um, is there anything else that you want to share specifically for those infectious disease uh, focused uh, pharmacists that are out there listening? Well, I think it'd be interesting to know, since we'll focus on prophylaxis, which is our uh, initial uh, approach. I think there's a therapeutic option as well. Uh, for uh, the ability to treat uh, high contamination surface type infections. Uh, but in terms of prophylaxis, I, I think clinically we underestimate all of the resources that go into the uh, process from acquisition of the drug to actual effective delivery at the point of service for that prophylactic agent. Uh, we also, I think, underestimate the negative impact on the patient's microbiome and the environment at large uh, in terms of alterations of the patient's microbiome and broader the, the entire microbiome uh, in terms of resistance effect. And then that, in addition to that, some drugs, not all the ones we use for, for prophylaxis, have actual side effect and toxicity profiles for end organs, one being vancomycin for say. Um, so we have to think about if there's a way to get highly effective treatment at the site of contamination, which is what SSI is, uh, before it becomes systemic, uh, we can avoid all of the, the negative uh, aspects of systemic delivery of a drug where we only really need it in one location. 
I read a recent press release that um, PolyPit announced its 100th patient enrolled in SHIELD, which is a phase three clinical trial of DPLEX for the prevention of uh, post-abdominal surgery and um, in preventing the infection. So that, that in itself was, a, it was an exciting um, announcement, and it, it gives you an opportunity to, to continue to collect more data even through artificial intelligence, we just did a episode with IBM Watson's Health, which is collecting a tremendous amount of of data from from uh, health centers, uh, surgeons, pharmacists, to do um, more predictive uh, setting of information for for uh, <clears throat> medical specialists and, and researchers. So that's an exciting announcement. Yeah, I think uh, the studies will be exciting because. Uh, not only is it going to be uh, the first real uh, large uh, phase three trial for our product specifically, but it's also going to give a, a broader context of the role of uh, prophylaxis for surgical site infection colectomy in the modern world. There's still some debate about what the optimal strategies are, uh, preoperative luminal antibiotic, uh, in addition to the parenteral at the time of surgery. Uh, the redosing schedules that can be problematic depending on which agent is chosen. Um, so I think we'll learn a lot about some of the, the current standard of care uh, uh, logistic issues and, and where uh, our product will play in the background. Dr. Anthony Senegor, it's been uh, delightful to talk with you. We hope to have you back and have a couple uh, infectious disease specialist pharmacists on with us to uh, to track and to um, help and advise with each other on maybe even specific example cases, but really appreciate you being here. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the time. And uh, this is an excellent platform, I think, to, to encourage discussions around broad topics. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.